But tonight, we're going to nerd out a little bit. So if you're into that kind of thing, get ready. If not, you can just lay down and take a nap. I won't get offended. Um, the Old Testament ends with a group of people from Israel being released. Um, I did a timeline and everything. This is awesome. I'm so excited. Uh, with a group of people being released from captivity. Around 600 um, B.C., um, Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians came into Jerusalem and captured Jerusalem. They took most of the important people, the young people, the beautiful people, the smart people, into Babylon and took them out of Jerusalem. About 539, Cyrus had taken over Babylon. He had overthrown Babylon. The Persian Empire was the Babylonian Empire. And Cyrus released uh, Ezra and a group of uh, Israelites to rebuild the temple, to kind of reestablish... Okay, we got the Babylon. There we go. To reestablish um, worship in Jerusalem. So around 539, they, they rebuild the temple. It takes about two years to do it. And they rebuild the temple, but they're just kind of punching bags. All the surrounding lands, they have no defense. They can just kind of come in and plunder them at will. And so for over 100 years, they're really getting kind of beat up. And then at about 445, um, whoops, around 445, uh, Artaxerxes, the Persian emperor at this time, releases uh, Nehemiah and a group of Israelites to come and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. So they come and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. They do that remarkably fast, like 52 days. And Jerusalem is kind of set back up. They can worship, and they really have a period here of autonomy where they're kind of self-governed. They're technically in the Persian Empire, but for the most part, they're left alone, allowed to run their own thing. This is kind of where the Old Testament ends, okay, with the kind of the restoration of Jerusalem. And it sets off what we call Second Temple Judaism. Um, and a lot of things that kind of changed in captivity that play out over the next couple hundred years. 332, everything changes. 332, Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire, conquer this entire region. They kind of conquer the entire known world at the time, but this includes Palestine. And he takes over um, Israel, and really the kind of Greek Hellenization begins in Palestine. The Greek influence shows up, but it doesn't last long because Alexander dies in about 323, and he left no heirs. Um, so his kingdom was split up over his generals, and... Um, and Israel kind of fell right on two borders between the Ptolemaic Empire that was uh, rooted in Egypt and the Seleucid Empire that was in um, Syria. And, it, and so for about a hundred years, it just kind of goes back and forth. One would cut into the other one's kingdom a little bit, and they would become controllers of Israel, and then the other one would push back, and they would get Israel. And, and the awesome thing for Israel is these two were so busy fighting over each other that nobody really bothered too much with Israel. So they were pretty much left alone for about 100 years and allowed to do their own thing until 200 when the Seleucid Empire pushes far enough into the Ptolemaic Kingdom that they gain solid control of Israel. And this is when it gets important because the Seleucid Empire was evangelistically Hellenistic. They believed the way you handled colonies was you brought in your art, you brought in your thinkers, you brought in your technology, you brought in your architecture, and you just kind of overwhelmed that culture with your culture until everybody kind of bought into it. And so this begins what they call the Hellenization of Israel, when uh, the Greek influence from the Seleucid Empire really comes in. And this starts a culture war um, in Israel. There was uh, the kind of upper-class families led by um, the Tobiad clan. 
There's this family, the Tobias, kind of led it. They were an upper-class uh, family that thought that there was a lot of potential in this kind of Greek influence. And so they actually led a, ch- a push to do away with the Torah as a kind of a public document because the Torah was more than just like a religious document. It told you how to handle sin and how to handle sacrifice and, you know, the, the consecration of a priest or a holy thing. But it also told you how to do the measures in the marketplace and how to trade a donkey with your neighbor properly. It told you what made a citizen and what you could do to be removed as a citizen. This document for Israel was both their creeds and their constitution. And uh, the Tobiad clan and really the Hellenizing Jews, the kind of upper class Jews, wanted to do away with this. They kind of wanted to put the Torah as just a religious document and legally embrace the kind of the Greek law as their um, as the kind of the law of Israel. And this set off a culture war that, that actually did break out in violence a few times. And so this is kind of an undercurrent. And this group of Hellenizers started calling themselves Sadducees. Um, we hear that name once we get into the New Testament. And so this undercurrent, this kind of resistance movement starts up of some folks that were trying to preserve the kind of Jewish heritage. They were, they were pro-Torah. They were uh, for the teaching of kind of the Jewish history and the law. Um, they were the, the pro-God movement. And so this is kind of sitting there until about 175 when um, Epiphanes becomes the new Antiochus of the Seleucid Empire. That was basically their king. And Epiphanes, um, he had this habit of, of identifying the power structure in one of these kind of colonial spaces. And he would come in and, and co-opt the power structure for his side. So he would, if it was a religious um, environment, he would kind of find the priest and he would co-opt the priest. If it was a kind of a war tribe, he would find the, the strongest warlord and he would pay this guy off. Whatever he had to do to co-opt the power um, center of a, of a town, he would do to bring them over to his side so he could continue his Hellenization. So Epiphanes does this. Onias III is the high priest of Israel at the time, and he comes to Onias and he tries to co-opt Onias uh, into the Seleucid Empire, and Onias resists. Um, but his brother Jason kind of hears the conversation and Jason approaches Epiphanes and says, why don't you put me in at the high priest, remove my brother, put me in his place, and I'll do whatever you want. And so Epiphanes does this. Epiphanes puts Jason in at high priest and removes Onias. And this sets off, this kind of solidifies the culture war and starts an absolute civil war. Um, Jason comes in and he kind of takes some of the holy vestitures out of the temple himself and civil war breaks out. Um, normally, uh, from what we know historically, Epiphanes would normally let these go. He would just let them work themselves out and kind of let the powerful group rise to the top and then he would co-opt that group. But this time he doesn't do that. He decides to get involved himself and he sends a Seleucid garrison into Israel to shut down the civil war and begins basically a forced Hellenization of Jerusalem. So Epiphanes comes in um, with his army. He puts a, a, well, first thing he did was he changed the laws. He outlawed um, all uh, holy days and festivals. He outlawed Sabbath ritual. He outlawed all circumcisions. He outlawed owning a Torah was illegal. He burned all the copies of the Torah he could find. Um, He put up a statue of Zeus in the temple and started 
um, sacrificing the Greek gods in the Jewish temple, um, including the sacrifice of swine, which was absolutely verboten to a Jew. And so, and this was in an attempt to, to just kind of force Hellenize Jerusalem, to, to move them into the future, basically, into the Greek culture. Um, a guy named Mattathias, he was one of the priests, uh, is asked to, to do a sacrifice for um, to one of the Greek gods. He resists, and so they bring in uh, another priest, um, a Tobiad priest, and Mattathias, uh, he was, uh, Mattathias the Hasmonean was his name. Mattathias slays the Jewish priest that was getting ready to do this sacrifice, and he also kills the Seleucid um, officer who was commanding the sacrifice. He has to flee. So he and his family take off for the wilderness. They flee. About a year later, uh, Mattathias dies. I think, um, nope, about a year later, Mattathias dies. And his son, uh, Judas, um, who later was nicknamed the Hammer, which is an awesome nickname. If you ever feel like giving me a nickname, I recommend the Hammer. That would be stellar. Um, and the way you say Hammer in uh, Hebrew is um, Maccabee, so if you... If that sounds familiar, um, it actually means hammer, and I would rather go by Judas the Hammer if it were me. But Judas the Hammer um, and his brothers um, band up, and they basically attack the Seleucid garrison at, at Jerusalem. They come in, and the Seleucid army still attacked in columns, like in rows, and uh, they were using guerrilla warfare, attacking from the bushes, and they managed to drive out this garrison from Israel. Uh, they chase off the Seleucid army, well, the, the small piece of it. And jo uh, Judah sets up his brother um, Jonathan as high priest. Jonathan starts cleansing the cleansing of the temple. And Jonathan uh, reinstitutes uh, Jewish worship. Meanwhile, he gets back to Epiphanes that his garrison has been chased out of Israel. And so he rounds up the whole army they start marching toward Israel. When they're about halfway there, Epiphanes dies suddenly in Syria. And the army, because when he dies, there's civil unrest. The army has to turn around and leave. They don't get a chance to, to attack Israel after all. They have to go back to Syria to, to establish, reestablish order. And this sets off what we call the Hasmonean dynasty. Um, Jonathan is high priest until Judah dies, and then Jonathan kind of becomes king and high priest and it kind of starts because they no longer had the Davidic line they didn't really have a, um, a legitimate claim to kingship and so the power base kind of fell um, into the temple um, for the first time and this is actually um, some weird things happened here because um, when when they were in captivity they had no temple and the temple had been the center of their worship the center of their their uh, understanding of how God worked and how they related to God. And then they go into captivity, they don't, have, they don't have that. And so they started these kind of small teaching groups where they would, in, in hopes of preserving the Jewish heritage, they would teach the Torah. And they would get together in these small groups and they would just teach the Torah, reteach the stories to make sure everybody stayed fresh on these stories. And they started calling these little groups um, synagogues. And, they, and so they would meet in these synagogues. When they came out of captivity, there's kind of a weird understanding because now the temple is back. And they have the temple as, as a, uh, a place to experience their worship. But now they're all kind of used to these gatherings for learning the Torah. And so after they came out of captivity, they had both. The synagogue remained, 
And the synagogue became kind of the house of learning. It kind of be where you would come and learn about the story of God and, and what God has to say about things. But then you would go to the temple to offer sacrifices. And after a while, especially with the installation of Jason and now with um, Jonathan kind of becoming a power base in the temple, the temple kind of takes on almost more of a figurehead type place. It becomes kind of a power center. But the majority of the kind of the conservative folks still stayed in the synagogue because that's where you could learn the Torah and actually learn about the story of God. And so there becomes a separation even within the religious system about about where you go for kind of the, the power understanding of, of your faith and where you go to learn about your faith. So we have we now have the Hasmonean dynasty. This is a, a period of a couple almost a hundred years where Israel is, is self governed and it it goes back and forth. When Jonathan dies, his younger brother Simon takes over the throne, and Simon actually signs a treaty with the Seleucid Empire so that there's kind of no more sniping. He doesn't have, they don't have to pay taxes. All they have to do is send troops if the Seleucid Empire is attacked. And so for quite a while, they're left completely alone. And they're self-governing. They don't pay taxes to anybody. It's a time of prosperity and, and kind of self-reign for Israel. This lasts till 63. In 63... Uh, Pompey the Great conquers this entire region um, for Rome. And, uh, and Pompey, um, whenever that he would conquer, he would immediately impose really heavy taxes. Rome was really expanding purely to fund Rome the city. Rome the city was um, just a vacuum of money. And so they would have to conquer new lands just to pull in more money to kind of keep the, the center of Rome functioning. And so whenever Pompey would come in, they would immediately institute really heavy taxes. And so this is a gigantic shock to Israel. And, and this sets off kind of a time of, of real poverty and struggle. And then in 40 BC, um, Rome puts in Herod the Great, declares Herod to be king of the Jews. They send him to Jerusalem in 40 uh, BC, and it takes him about three years to conquer Jerusalem. So in 37, Herod is set up as king of the Jews. And Herod did it a little different than the Seleucid Empire. About half of his family converted to Judaism, um, which you know was kind of a, it kind of made him one of them a little bit. And then his very first building project was to expand a temple. And this made the Jews happy. And so there was a, there was kind of a, is this a good guy or a bad guy? Nobody really knew. So it kind of settled down the culture war because this guy could kind of speak to both sides. And so Herod, um, he sets on a huge building program. Most of the things that survived of the temple today, Herod built the wall, uh, the arch staircase. He did most of the courtyards and buildings, made the temple this big, glorious thing. Um, he built whole cities, including two uh, major port cities that became major port cities. He kind of built them from scratch. Two huge um, fortresses, Masada and uh, Herodium, he built. Um, he, got a, he had a monopoly of asphalt at the Dead Sea. He and Cleopatra figured out that this asphalt they could get from the Dead Sea was perfect for shipbuilding. They would line their ships with them to make them waterproof. And, um, and so he was making money hand over fist on asphalt in the Dead Sea. He commissioned the digging of copper mines um, and had a fortune on copper mines. Uh, a lot of historians say at the time of his death, Herod was probably the richest person on the planet. Um, he was so wealthy that when he died, the Roman Empire forcibly split his kingdom amongst his three sons and his wife because they were afraid that Herod might have the wealth and size to, to challenge Rome. 
And so they split his kingdom up amongst his three sons and his wife. Um, the younger son, Herod Antipas, was made uh, Tetrarch of Galilee, which um, he's the one we hear about in the scripture um, when they talk about Herod. And Herod the Great rules for about 34 years, dies um, right around the birth of Jesus. Some historians say he was the one who issued the, the command to kill all the babies to try and get Jesus, and they had Jesus had to flee. Some people say it was his son. Most people believe that was Herod the Great that did that. Herod the Great was kind of twisted. At his death, he, um, uh, because he feared they wouldn't mourn him, that people would celebrate his death when he knew he was sick, he actually in, uh, issued a decree to kill all the Jewish priests in the land so that there would at least be mourning at his death, even if it wasn't geared toward him. Um, so really twisted guy. But fortunately, they didn't carry out the decree. He died, and they ignored the decree. But they did find it um, later. So this is the political atmosphere at the time of Jesus. This is, uh, let's see what we got here. This is kind of the movement. Just so you get a picture, um, that's a, all of American history. So basically from the Seleucid conquest um, forward, all fits into American history. Uh, a couple hundred years, really. Um, and if you go from, I mean, since we were a country, obviously, um, if you go from the time that Herod the Great, well, really, the time that, that Rome overthrows Israel to the time of Jesus, that's only the amount of time that America's had television. This is, fairly, this is fairly short history at the time of Jesus. This is the political environment he walked in. Literally like this pressure cooker of political turmoil. I bring this up for a couple reasons. Number one, this is important as we study Acts. That this is the this is the political environment that this happened in. It's important to know that this is what's underneath the surface in every story that's being told. Okay, this is the environment they live in. Um, and number two, the reason I ask is, is how many people? I want an honest show of hands. Knew this history before we started. Before I started talking, Bill, you don't count. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Some of it, right? Nope. Some a lot of people didn't. Anybody have any idea why? I think the reason why is actually pretty important. And don't do that because we don't learn enough in school. That's not it. I, I submit that the reason we don't know this is because Jesus didn't talk about it. What's not said here is kind of important. That Jesus shows up and starts this gigantic world-changing movement in the midst of this, like, pressure cooker and almost ignores it. Almost indifferent to everything that's going on. Just kind of walks through it, starting this new thing, this new kind of quiet thing and doesn't really play with any of the players, any of the big movers, any of the big shakers, any of the big stuff happening. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. So let's get into our passage. This is Paul with the Areopagus. A little bit more history. The Areopagus was, um, it was a group of, of uh, Greek, uh, it's almost like a, like a uh, Supreme Court in the Greek religion. These guys had two jobs. Number one was they tried murder cases uh, because on Ares Hill, Ares was the Greek god of war. We call it, usually hear it called Mars Hill. Mars was a Roman version of Ares, but it was typically called Ares Hill back then which is why they call it the Areopagus. Uh, Ares Hill 
Areopagus means the hill of Aries, by the way. Uh, Aries Hill was where Aries was tried. He murdered somebody for raping his daughter, and so he was tried for murder there and acquitted. And so they just started kind of trying murder cases there. This is cold-blooded first-degree murder. They saw this as a direct offense to the gods because it's somebody's attempt to play God. And so they would try murder cases on, on this hill, and Areopagus was always the jury for this. And the second thing they did, and this is what's important to us today, is the Areopagus would also be the, the kind of supreme court for, for, for Greek worship. So if you came and you were like, hey, I want to do this thing, do you think it would make Athena happy? You could go to the Areopagus, and they would say, yes, that's, a, that's an adequate worship of Athena. And they would kind of give you their stamp of approval. And they were supposed to be kind of well-versed in all the gods, the lore of all the gods, and not just a pre... Like, if, you, if it was specifically Athena you want to know about, you'd usually go to a, an Athenian uh, priestess, but if you want to know, is this going to offend Olympia? Is this going to offend the gods? You could go to the Areopagus, and they would tell you. <clears throat> this began to be corrupted because if you were, let's say, a statue maker and you make a particular statue to Hermes the god, if you could get the Areopagus to stamp that thing and say that you, are, you, make, a good, you make a good statue to Hermes, it's like the Oprah Book Club. You may remember the Oprah Book Club where if Oprah mentioned a book, it was an immediate like New York Times bestseller the very next day. That's what the Areopagus did. If you could get them to stamp your work, that you make a good statue, then you could sell these things like hotcakes. And that was, so this was highly sought after. So of course people started paying for this and it, it began to corrupt things a little bit because you could bribe the Areopagus to give you a stamp of approval and whatnot. So this is kind of a big, this is kind of a big uh, political group. And this is who Paul winds up talking to. Paul is left in Athens. They have to run for their life and they're in Athens. They go back to get some more people and Paul winds up there by himself. He's walking around, he sees all these statues, and Paul decides uh, that he wants to, he's overwhelmed by how uh, given over to idols they are. So he goes, well, he does what he does, which is goes to the synagogue, and he starts there, and he starts talking to the Jews that have moved there in the, in the, in the Great Dispersion, and starts talking to them first, and then he goes to the marketplace, and he's basically street preaching. Paul's just out in the corners, he's one of those guys with the sign, Jesus is coming. And, uh, and he's just street preaching to people out in the marketplace. And somebody overhears him. And either they're offended or um, they're impressed. We don't really know what. We just know that somebody grabs him and takes him to the Areopagus. And this is kind of a big deal because Paul's in Athens. And if he preaches a sermon here that can make the Areopagus go, this is good. This is good. You got it. Then Paul will own Athens. All he has to do is preach a sermon to win over the Areopagus, and Paul will be able to basically convert Athens. This is his shot at the big show. I've actually titled my message, The Gospel in the Big Show. This is Paul This is Paul on the Today Show, on Letterman, on Jimmy Fallon, and he has a chance to really knock one out of the park here. And if he can do it, then he's basically got the stamp of approval to evangelize Athens. So this is the message Paul preaches. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. 
He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the, bound, and their, and bound, and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in hopes that they might grope in, for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, and he's quoting Erastus here, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold and silver and stone, something shaped by art and men's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. <clears throat> this is an interesting sermon of Paul's because normally when we hear Paul speak and when we see him write, he's writing from kind of his background, which is the Old Testament. We see him make a lot of Old Testament references. We see him reference the people of God and the story of God in a lot of his writings and stuff. And here Paul finds himself speaking to a group of people who don't have that background. These are Greek believers. These are Greek uh, people from a whole different religion. So he can't use a lot of his historical and cultural anchors to go from. So it's kind of fun to watch what he does here. And really, um, he kind of breaks some rules. I mean, if you want to be completely strict about it. Because he starts, wait a minute, I want to go back. He starts by saying um, that he's preaching that there's a statue to the unknown God. He was like, that's the God I want to talk to you about. This is not altogether accurate in the Jewish context because God, you can't make an idol to God. And so to point at a particular idol and say, that's the God I'm preaching, is kind of breaking the rules a little bit. So Paul starts out here with a, with a little, but he finds a cultural hook. And we do this. We all do this. I like to preach from movies and songs and, like, and you're, you're finding little things you can use to kind of anchor your message. And so Paul kind of starts with a, with a, a cultural hook here, which is interesting. But then he goes to, well, I'd like to submit that he, that he goes at the heart. He's, he's talking about their idolatry in general, but he goes at three particular heart idols that, that I see in this passage that I really want to go after because I think they're, they're important to, uh, to Athens, but they're also kind of important to us. And he starts here. I, I feel like he goes after the, the god of piety, if, if, I'm gonna, if I can use that word, kind of their religious piety. He goes after their kind of racial nationalism, and he goes after their, uh, their wallet. And we're going to talk about those three things specifically. He starts here. He says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Their worship was based on, they didn't have a morality built into their religion. It wasn't like their God said, this is right, wrong, and it was, the religion was fully based on making God happy, just just making the gods happy. There wasn't really particular rules other than murder um, that, that you could and couldn't do. And so their religion was based on offering enough sacrifices to please the gods. And this kind of created a classism because the rich could obviously offer more and so they had more favor from the gods. And so their piety was built on how much they could give the gods and they would brag on that. There, was, there were statements you can um, find in some of the ancient writers where they would say, um, a, a Hermes never goes hungry in my house. And they would, they would say this, that they, like, we, we offer a ton to our gods. And their piety was built on this. And, and Paul kind of goes after that and says, 
Um, you know, God can't be worshipped by giving him stuff like he needs anything from you. He doesn't need anything from you. Like he's the one who gives all things. And so Paul starts out by basically saying, my God is, is bigger than your piety. My God is bigger than your religion. Your, your religion and everything it's based on cannot hold my God. So he goes at their religion first. Second thing he goes after is their kind of racial nationalism. He said he made from one blood every nation of man to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings that they should seek the Lord and in the hope that they should grope for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. They had house gods. They had city gods. They had national gods. And obviously, if you have that, um, you're kind of naturally nationalistic. And, you know, if you, if the Athenians hate the Cretes, well, then it was because your god hated their god. And so it kind of created this this deep nationalism. And and Paul says, my God is bigger than that. The God on this side of the war line is the same God that's on that side. The God of this race, guess what? He's also the God of that race. He said, God is bigger than your nationalism. He's bigger than your, than your racial divides that you create. He said, your, your religion is built on this division, this divisiveness, and my God is bigger than that. That doesn't work with my God. So he, he says, my God is bigger than your religion. My God is bigger than your nationalism and your racism. And third, he goes after their economy. He says, and we find this out in another passage where Paul uh, leads a girl to the Lord who um, was a sorceress, basically. And, and we find out that the people who had Paul arrested, they didn't do it because he was like offending their religion. They did it because he was costing them money. They were like, we made a ton of money off this girl. Now he's converted her and she's no good to us anymore. And so, like especially in Athens, especially around the Acropolis um, uh, and the Areopagus, uh, idle, idle sales was huge business. This was, I think, I think I read this was their second biggest export. Like this was the kind of fundamental income of this area. And, and so Paul basically says, God can't be, uh, the divine nature can't be put in gold and silver and stones and something you can, sell and basically in saying that is like all this money you're making is worthless this has nothing to do with God God is bigger than your economy so here God basically in this message Paul he goes after their religion he goes after their uh, nationalism and their racism and then he goes after their economy and I said I quite I ask you if, if Paul instead of spending an hour um, in Athens, if you spent an hour on Facebook, do you think he'd come out with a different message? I mean, if you pull, maybe he'd have thrown sex in there. But if, if you pull all the religious quotes and all the political quotes and all the ads to sell you things out of Facebook, you're basically left with pictures of Puppy and Morgan's puns. That's about all you've got left. And it would probably be better for it. I don't think there's, I don't think there's, much difference between what Paul is saying here and what um, and what he would say to us. And what's ironic, this is one thing I just want to throw out, there's just to think about, the only thing he doesn't go after is their art. And this is kind of interesting because Paul actually almost gives a nod to their artists. Like, your artists have gotten closer than any of your religion religious people have. And this is just something to think about. I think sometimes the artists get closer than, than our theologians do. 
Um, if you've ever heard one of those songs that's not even a Christian song and it just makes you cry and makes you feel close to God, there's something about that. There's something in that. When you look at that painting and it's just a painting of the mountains and like something in your heart responds to it, I think sometimes our artists get closer than our theologians do. That's just something to think about. But here's, here's where Paul is. And it, at this point, it seems like he has him. This is compelling stuff. Who doesn't want a God that's bigger than these things? Who doesn't want a God that's bigger than the religious boxes that we hold him in? Who doesn't want a God that's bigger than our nationalism and the things we fight over, our politics, and a God that's bigger than our, than our wallet and the things that, like, this is compelling stuff. And if Paul could just wrap it up here, he would have the Areopagus, and he would have his stamp. But you could, you could maybe say Paul blows it. <laughs> he says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. Paul has to go and blow it and bring up the resurrection. And this is if you read on, I don't know if I put it on there or not. Yeah, as soon as he brought it up. And when he heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked and others said, ah, we'll hear more later. Like, Paul drops the ball because he talks about the resurrection. And this is when we find out that the gospel doesn't work in the big show. It just doesn't. Because you have to talk about stuff like the resurrection, and you have to talk about stuff like sin, and you have to talk about stuff like confession, and that stuff doesn't sell on Athens Hill. It just doesn't. And so Paul gets his shot. And you know where he is the next day? He's back in the marketplace, street preaching again. Because the gospel is a gospel of little things. The gospel is a gospel of resurrection. And it's a gospel of sacrifice. And, it's a, it's, and the reason that I think it's important that Jesus didn't engage all these big movements, all these big things that are happening, these huge political you know, tug of wars, and Jesus is out in the countryside. Like, he's the center of our story, so we have a tendency to think of, of this Jesus being the, the, the kind of the big shot in this whole story. And if you pull back, most of this is happening on a Galilean hillside. This is backwoods country stuff. And this is a guy who's just talking to a crowd, and when he does do something big, he's usually going, hey, let's keep this quiet. Don't tell anybody. Like, shh. You know, cast out somebody, cast out a demon, and and the person is running off excited. He's like, hey, go, go on your way and don't tell anybody. Something about the gospel works in little places. Because it's a gospel of resurrection. It's a gospel about a man hanging on a cross. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said, brother, I did not come to you with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is ironic because Paul is actually really, really articulate. Anything you read him saying, like, he brings a lot of wisdom and he brings a lot of what he says he doesn't bring. So I don't think here he means I'm just a dummy who says nothing but Christ and crucified. I think he's saying, you'll never hear me preach a message that does not include Christ and him crucified. It's going to be in every message. And if I get my chance on the big show, if I get my chance where all I have to do is tone down my message and I'll get a stamp, I can't. I'm always going to preach Christ and Him crucified. And I love, I love to find creative ways to tell a story. I'll use movies, I'll use history, I'll use philosophy, I'll use science. 
But at the end of the day, if I don't tell you about Christ and Him crucified, I didn't preach a sermon to you. Because that's the sermon. That's the message. Paul has a chance on the air with the Areopagus to go big. But the message, he has to stick with the message. And the message is Christ and Him crucified. So as we enter our response time today, I want you to think about a Galilean rabbi who entered a world that was torn apart by political stress. And in the midst of this turmoil, he chose to walk on a countryside. And he chose to preach to backwoods people and gather ordinary, everyday Joes. He didn't say anything about Herod, who had literally just revitalized the whole area, brought water to Jerusalem, aqueducts, which had never been done before. You'd think somebody would bring that up. And one guy tried to say, hey, what about this? you see this thing that was built? He was like, you don't understand. God could tear that down and put it back up in, in three days. Like, he didn't even play the big games and somehow turned the world over doing it. He had a chance to play with the big boys and instead he decided to go to a cross. Because God had a bigger story. An even bigger story. Paul had a chance to do it. Paul had a chance to go big. And he stuck with the resurrection. And this is one of the reasons we always gather around the table together. And we always remember a broken body and poured out blood. Because that's the story. That's the message. No matter what we talk about, no matter what direction we go with it, no matter how deep we go, how nerdy we go, how shallow we go, the message is Jesus hanging on a cross for us. It's him doing the work. It's a broken body and poured out blood. It's a love that's so big it won't live without us.